Hey, and welcome to Hacked Off. In this episode, I want to talk to you about something that's quite related to penetration testing, but maybe we haven't talked directly about before, and that is malicious software. I want to look a little bit about the history of malicious software and come up with a prediction for the future based on some of the events of the last couple of years. So when I say malicious software, I'm using that as the group word for viruses, trojans, worms, ransomware, all of the different kinds of bad software. And for most of this, I'm just going to abbreviate that malicious software term to malware for the sake of ease. There are some pedants out there, though, that get fixated on the differences, so I'll briefly give you the differences between viruses, worms, trojans, those kinds of things, but I think you'll find as I talk throughout this this podcast, quite a lot of these terms have been misused throughout history, so they're not always useful, they're not always correctly used, but they do have individual meanings, so it's worth pointing those out before I dive into the history of bad software doing bad things. So... Viruses, worms, trojans, what do these words mean? Well, viruses are generally considered to be malicious software that spreads by attaching itself to files or programs, which then themselves are shared manually by humans. So viruses uh, infect files, if you would like to use that term, and then they're they're spread manually through uh, uh, human sharing a file or uh, putting a file on a network share or something like that. This is similar to, but importantly distinct from, worms, Worms propagate automatically. They can do that in lots of different ways, by automatically placing themselves in open file shares through known exploits, compromised credentials, those kinds of things. But worms generally automatically propagate. Trojans are different, and they pose a little bit of a different risk to users, but are still themselves malicious software. What Trojans do is they're effectively designed to pose as legitimate software possibly something unrelated to their actual purpose. It could be something simple like a game, but they have within them malicious code. Very often when people talk about Trojans, they're talking about remote access Trojans or rats. Remote access Trojans are pieces of malicious software that have backdoors installed within them. The idea being that the attacker comes up with some compelling piece of software you might want to download, maybe posing as some music files or posing as a game or something, you download it and they get a backdoor into your system. So viruses, worms, trojans, we have different terms. And I guess more recently, people have started talking about ransomware and things like that. I'll talk a little bit about ransomware because it isn't necessarily as new as some people would be, uh, some people would possibly lead you to believe. But it's another important category distinct from those three terms. For the sake of convenience, though, I'm just going to refer to bad software as malware throughout this presentation. Sometimes you'll hear Trojans referred to as RATS, as I mentioned earlier, Remote Access Trojan. Sometimes you'll hear that acronym expanded into Remote Administrative Tool, or Remote Administration Tool. This is a good time to talk about dual-use software. Now, the context uh, dual-use technology comes from the military, where we have technology that has a legitimate benefit to civilians and military. So a good example there would be something like GPS, Global Positioning Satellites. Civilians can use it for their in-car sat-nav, but the military can use it for directing missiles. That term dual-use, though, can be applied to software as well, specifically malicious software. 
So you might have some tool which has a legitimate purpose for a systems administrator or something like that. A tool that might be intended to give a systems administrator remote access to administer some of their systems might be used by a crime group to infect machines or to administer machines they don't have lawful authority to do so. So dual use is an interesting thing, especially when you look at the profession that we have here at Sakama of penetration testing, where companies are paying us to lawfully test their security systems. Many of the tools that we use could be used by crime groups to throw some off-the-top-of-my-head examples out there. Tools like Metasploit or Burp Suite could be used by penetration testers, bug bounty hunters, and no doubt the odd cyber criminal too. So there's a distinct set of tools that are useful to penetration testers that are also useful to crime groups, and this gets into a really awkward part of the law that I'm not going to dwell on here, but for those who are curious about the legal background, there's such a thing called the Wasner Arrangement, which is on export controls for conventional arms, and in December 2013 it was amended to include new technologies such as intrusion software. So there's a certain legal background there where intrusion software hacking tools are being considered in the same arrangement as conventional arms. An interesting thing, but I'm going to gloss over that right now. We've defined malicious software as tools that are used by crime groups but may be used by penetration testers. But how old is the concept of malware? Now, not the, the word itself, but looking back at viruses, worms, trojans, what's the oldest reference that we can come up with? Well, I did some research, and one of the oldest attacks that I could find allegedly happened in 1969. We'll get to that allegedly in a second, but somebody allegedly loaded a software program into the University of Washington's computer center, and that program replicated itself endlessly until all system resources had been used and the system became unavailable. So I guess that's another kind of software that we haven't considered, something to do with denial of service attacks. We'll get to that in a second, though. That uh, attack allegedly took place, and the reason I'm using that word is, interestingly, the University of Washington's own A History of IT at UW makes no such mention of the attack, but it is documented on catb.org, which is a site famous for hosting things like the hacker jargon file. So there is references to that attack, but a more well-documented or a more often spoken of attack happened just a couple of years later, but still, therefore, a very long time ago. In 1971, a piece of malicious software called Creeper was created, which was a simple program which moved through the ARPANET. The ARPANET, for those not old enough to remember it, is the precursor to the modern internet. So this piece of software propagated or moved from device to device and displayed a message that said, what's the effect of, I'm the Creeper, catch me if you can. So this is kind of a worm even though the first version moved between devices, a later version did duplicate itself, copying from de device to device, before the modern internet. In fact, that piece of malware infected PDP-10 mainframes, so that's back when computers filled rooms. So malware's been around for a really, really long time. Also, a thing that'll frustrate the pedants that I previously alluded to, Creeper is often referred to as the first computer virus, or well, maybe more accurately, it would be a worm. This is effectively the reason that I'm just going to call them all malware for now. But I mentioned ransomware, and I said ransomware has been around for a lot longer than people would expect. Not necessarily as far back as early worms in the early 1970s, 
But the first example that I know of of ransomware is 1989. To put that into perspective, if you look at your own IT team, that will be older than many of your team members. It's pretty old software. This first version that I could find documented was referred to as the AIDS Trojan, another one to frustrate the pedants. I'm going to refer to it as ransomware, but it's more commonly referred to as the AIDS Trojan. It was a very simple ransomware spread by physical floppy disks. Yeah, this is before we had heavy file transfer across the internet and things like that, so it was spread on floppy disks. But it would display a message demanding a monetary payment. Of course, this is before Bitcoin. Bitcoin coming out in, what, 2009? So this is well before the convenience of cryptocurrencies. It demanded a payment of $189 by banker's draft to a pure box. Yeah, malware is super old, and even things that we consider to be modern problems like ransomware is super old too. I mentioned denial of service attacks though, and very often people wouldn't consider denial of service attacks within the context of malicious software, but they're often launched with hacking tools, and hacking tools are malicious software, so they're worth considering. Also, denial of service attacks, or distributed denial of service attacks, DDoS attacks, are very often only, people only talk about bandwidth consumption. Bandwidth consumption being what it sounds like, where you get a network of machines, a botnet, or some particularly heavy, chunky machines that can send so much traffic to a target device that it overwhelms it. Bandwidth consumption. That's not the only kind of denial of service attack, though. So in the context of hacking tools, there's a good example here of making a hacking tool that just sends a lot of emails to people. If you can flood somebody's email inbox with junk mail, they won't be able to receive legitimate emails, and that's, I guess, a kind of denial of service attack. And the tool that will launch that for you, the email flutter, is a kind of malicious software. Now, denial of service attacks also have an interesting aspect of law. Again, not something I'm going to dwell on, just something I'm going to highlight, the same as the Vasner Agreement, as a, hey, this is an interesting thing you might want to read about. I'm not a lawyer, so we're not going to dwell on the law side too much. But a lot of people do say that denial of service attacks weren't explicitly illegal until 2006 which is surprisingly late. I mentioned malicious software attacks in the 70s, ransomware in the late 80s. So hearing that denial of service attacks weren't explicitly illegal until 2006 is surprising. It's also not technically true, but it does make the point of the law very often struggles to keep up with new technological developments, new attacks and those kinds of things. So whilst I'm not a lawyer, I did think I would do a little bit of research and try and give you a good example of how denial of service attacks fit within the law. This date of 2006 comes from the Police and Justice Act Amendment to the Computer Misuse Act, which changed the uh, Computer Misuse Act to include terminology like unauthorized access with intent to impair or with recklessness as to impairing the operation of a computer. Now that definitely does sound like denial of service attacks. But I found a good example that predates this law coming into, or rather this amendment coming in. And that was a chap. In January 2004, a person by the name of Lennon downloaded a program which allowed him to send an estimated 5 million emails to his former employer. That sounds like a lot of attacks that we hear, disgruntled employee, disrupting systems, those kinds of things. But sending 5 million emails to his former employer caused a bit of a mess up. And glossing over the 
specific details of the case, the first claim of no case to answer, an appeal, and all of those kinds of things. Before this Police and Justice Act amendment, Lennon was charged, sentenced to two months curfew by electronic tag. So denial of service attacks have been around for a long time as well. Why am I talking about all of these things? Why am I talking about malicious software from the 1960s and 1970s? I think I'm trying to highlight the fact that not a lot has changed in a long time. Ransomware demanding a monetary amount after encrypting the files of your systems happened in the 80s, and we're still seeing it now. We're seeing significant disruption to companies through ransomware attacks. But I do think something has changed very recently. Although ransomware has been around for a long time, in the last couple of years, we have seen developments with things like Notpedia, WannaCry, and the Samsung malware. So for those not intimately familiar with those details, I'll give you a, a brief overview. But Notpetya really was the, the point for me where I personally decided that I, I think ransomware might change. So this is my prediction based on my knowledge of the history of malware. I think it's going to get worse. Let me elaborate on that. It's kind of a depressing point to end on. So let me let me give you the details of why I think this happened. Um, when NotPetya happened to me, and I say happened to me because generally when you hear about malware attacks, it's something that you read on the news or something you see on TV, a company being knocked offline by ransomware or a denial of service attack, making a company unable to perform business. Whereas NotPetya, I was actually involved in the response for one company. I've done a lot of incident response stuff. Whilst it's not directly my job being a penetration tester, Sometimes when companies have times of crisis, they just call every security person that they know to come and help out. So I got a call from a company that said that they believed they'd been hit by ransomware. And in my experience prior to the NotPetya attack, which happened in 2017, if you don't remember, by the way, um, it's very common for customers to call you and not get the details right or through the email chain of it coming from the account manager to landing in the pen tester's inbox, some of the details have become blurry. A good example of that, in fact, was uh, one company who said they'd suffered a ransomware attack, and it turned out one of their computers had just crashed and was displaying the, you know, the common blue screen of death that Windows machines get. It's like, yeah, that that's just crashed. You can just turn it off and on again. So I got to this company expecting the norm. Either it wouldn't be a ransomware attack or it had been blown out of all proportion. Very often when we do see ransomware attacks back in 2016, it would just be a small number of machines infected, six, a dozen, something like that. This particular time, though, standing in the reception area of the customer's office, I could see a lot of machines infected, so I'm sitting there waiting to be dealt with. You can imagine a time of crisis, there's lots of IT people running around and not a lot of other staff running around because they'd all been sent home. But I could see on all of the machines within kind of visual range within the shop floor of this company, that ransomware message where it just says, what is it, words to the effect of, oops, your files have been encrypted. Because that's what ransomware does. It's a very simple attack. They infect your machine encrypt all of your files, display a message saying your files are encrypted, give us some money or we won't give you access to your files again. And I was standing there, it was the first time I'd seen an infection of that magnitude. Now, whilst I don't want to share the intimate details of the specific customer that it was working with, if you take a look at the NotPetya attack, it's pretty well documented now. For example, Maersk were reporting that they had to 
effectively rebuild the whole company, giving figures like 4,000 servers infected and tens of thousands of PCs infected. It's a pretty big deal. And that's what I saw when I got to this customer. And that was certainly a different thing, different to what I had experienced prior to 2017. So I was not petty different. Well, I guess people who had been intimately connected with WannaCry, maybe it wouldn't be different. And if you're not familiar with NotPetya, it was similar to WannaCry. They both happened at roughly the same time, the middle of 2017, but those were two of the earliest ransomwares that had very successful campaigns that self-propagated. And that's the difference. This is what I was saying earlier. Usually when we went to a customer site, they would have six or a dozen machines infected and that would be it. And generally, or in my experience, the most common uh, propagation method, uh, initial infection method, was a staff member opening a phishing email, opening a malicious email, and there'll be a malicious email attachment or something like that. They open the email attachment, their machine's infected. So the number of infections was, was generally low. But both WannaCry and NotPedia spread in a different way. It wasn't through just phishing emails. They used an exploit that's very often in penetration testing called MS17010, although MS17010 is actually the name of the patch, sometimes called Eternal Blue, the name of the vulnerability or when it came out from the NSA leaks. Ah, either way, exploits get names these days. What a strange world we live in. But both of these malware, WannaCry and NotPetya, could spread using MS17010. WannaCry just used that method, NotPetya had other methods. But this made it distinct. An attacker could get an initial foothold on a network and then spread across the internal network. That's staggeringly different, and the impact was was huge. Like I say, a Musk having over 4,000 servers infected, that's, that's absolutely huge. And it wasn't something that I had previously seen, and I imagine a lot of people would be thinking that at the time. This wasn't something we'd previously seen. Not Petya, just to fill in the gap there, it used the MS17010 vulnerability, but it also used, uh, it had the ability to extract credentials from memory so that it could uh, propagate using valid credentials. So if it infected a machine and there was a domain administrator logged in or a reused local administrator password, it could propagate across the network. That itself is also not something new. There's been hacking tools that can do that for a long time. The go-to example being Mimikatz. When was Mimikatz released? 2012, I think, was version one of Mimikatz. So not new, but, but new to automated propagation for malware and definitely effective. The funny thing was the customer that I was dealing with in this particular infection, um, their intrusion prevention system actually caught the MS1710 exploit, but then it just logged in with credentials and spread anyway. And the funny thing being that they noticed their IPS trigger and thought, oh, wow, that system was worth its money. Look, we've been protected. Isn't that a good thing? And then they got hit anyway. So that sucks, but it's interesting to see not only malware self-propagating, but malware having multiple propagation methods, a thing worth considering. So WannaCry and NotPetya spread automatically, but what about spreading manually? Well, we see that too. Um, the SamSam malware, for example, another ransomware, takes a more manual approach quite similar in some aspects to how you might operate on a pen test. The authors could use simple password brute forces, weaknesses in services, or weakness in JBoss or something like that. And uh, I saw in one report uh, from Symantec, in fact, that 
Samsung actually used the tool Mimikatz for at least one of their attacks. So instead of using Mimikatz-style techniques as NotPet, you did they just used the Mimikatz tools. So there's a good example of dual-use technology for you. They also used PierceExec, which if you're not into the hacking scene, you might be more familiar with. PierceExec is a part of Microsoft's SysInternals toolset used for remote administration. So yeah, those remote administration tools can cause problems too when they're in, in use by the attackers. So what is it that I'm building up to? What did I say my prediction would be? I think we're going to get more propagating malware. And why I think that was because WannaCry, NotPetya, and SamSam have shown that it works. And very often when we're talking about malware, and certainly when pen testers are talking about things like antivirus aversion, or I guess more accurately these days called anti-malware aversion, we sometimes complain that the malware authors don't do anything cool or don't do anything novel. They do the bare minimum to make the tool work and then it's distributed. And whilst that's sad to us from an academic or a technical point of view that we rarely see something very cool, some strange implementation of a, an aversion technique or something, of course that's what they do because the crime groups just care about return on investment. So they'll do the bare minimum to get the return. The difference here, of course, being that NotPetya and SamSam have proven it works. They've proven that propagation is worth the investment, at least in my opinion. So yeah, that's my devastating uh, presumption for the next few years at least is ransomware is not going away. And I think malware in general is going to start doing propagation techniques and those kinds of things. I think at this point in my talk, though, somebody's probably screaming in the background saying, but we have antivirus software or anti-malware software, whatever you want to call it these days. Um, yeah, hopefully you're at least somewhat aware that these solutions are never perfect. Anti-malware can be bypassed. Um, even if you've never considered it before, consider the fact that as a penetration tester, when we do the breaking into computers thing, we must be able to bypass anti-malware solutions if we couldn't, well, cybersecurity would be solved, wouldn't it? You'd install anti-malware and you'd be done. Install anti-malware and fire your security department. That's not going to work, of course. And we know that's not going to work, even if we haven't looked at the specifics of why. And I think this is a thing that isn't very often discussed. Many people do consider that you need defense in depth, you need a layered approach to security and having a single solution, be it anti-malware or firewalls or whatever it is, isn't going to be perfect. But very often people don't talk about why these systems are imperfect. So the end of my little malware rant, instead of ending on a depressing note that I think ransomware is going to get worse, I wanted to talk a little bit about the details. This will be a, a simplified overview of some of the bypass techniques that we use for anti-malware, just to fill people in on the, the cool details. And also, if you're interested in research into security and things like that, or the academic side of things, um, it's a cool area of research as well. It, it, it's one of the areas of security that absolutely is an arms race. We develop a technique that allows us to bypass anti-malware, and then the anti-malware people work very hard to come up with a new shield that protects against it. So it's a cool thing. For the sake of this talk, though, I'll, I'll broadly break anti-malware solutions into three categories. Signature-based, behavioral analysis-based, and then anything that you want to put in the bucket labeled machine learning or artificial intelligence or whatever you want to call that bucket. I'm going to leave the machine learning stuff 
for a talk of its own. We'll have a podcast on machine learning at some point, no doubt, and, and we'll cover that stuff then. But for now, broadly, signatures and behavioral analysis were the core components of how malware worked for a very long time, with AI and ML coming very recently and still, for a lot of solutions, being quite naive, being new and not perfect themselves. But signature detection works broadly by looking for patterns in a binary where that binary or malicious software sample is, is known to be malicious. So you can imagine this being something like uh, a malicious software analyst, a malware analyst, pulling apart a piece of software, making a determination that that software is malicious, and then coming up with a signature set so that if they ever see this file again in the future, they'll know that it's malicious and the anti-malware engine can be configured with those signatures so it will detect it automatically. Now we're going to use something like patterns in the code so that the bypass becomes non-trivial. If you imagine if we use something like the file name, it would be very easy to bypass it, just rename the file. But they look at patterns in the binary generally to come up with these signatures so that if you ever see it in the future, you can detect it. Now, signatures can be bypassed. The signature engines can be bypassed, and I'll talk that, about that in a second. But some people might think, well, if you can bypass them so easily, why do we still use them? And, and the reason for that is they're fast and not particularly resource-intensive. So if you can detect that a file has been seen before and is malicious, then a signature engine is useful for that. But we can bypass them through obfuscation techniques, packing, encrypting, those kinds of things. If you haven't heard packing, encrypting as technical terms before, they're more often than not used in the criminal side of things as opposed to the pen testing side of things. But again, dual-use technology. The way that this works, if you have a hacking tool or a piece of malware, you can encrypt that tool such that the antivirus engine can't see the signatures. They can't see these patterns in the code because the file's encrypted. And then you just include a decryption stub, a very small piece of software at the beginning of the file that does nothing other than decrypt it. Every time you want to use that malware, you set a different encryption key, and therefore the ciphertext looks different, and therefore it's not detected through signatures. So they can be bypassed, and, and that's good. Sometimes you'll see anti-malware engines picking up files based on the fact that they're encrypted or they have high entropy or things like that. I'm going to gloss over those details for now, but in short, crypting has been around for a while, and it's very often used to bypass signature engines. The cool thing, though, the part that I did want to talk about here is the way that these behavioral engines work. So depending on the platform, the behavioral engine is going to execute the malware within a sandbox or within an emulated environment. And it's going to monitor what the malicious software does. And if it does something bad, it'll flag it as bad. This is good because a malware analyst doesn't need to have seen this software before and you don't need to worry about the technicalities of signatures and things like that and you don't need to worry about the technicalities of, well, what if the file's encrypted? The malicious file or sample to be tested to deem if it is malicious will be executed and monitored and it's executed in an environment where it can't damage the system or anything like that. And if it does bad things, it's flagged. So how do we bypass behavioral engines? If you write some ransomware that does something really obvious, like looks for all of the files under the computer and then encrypts all of those files, a behavioral engine will pick up on that very quickly. Well, one way to bypass behavioral engines is if you can work out when you're being scanned by the behavioral engine, just behave yourself, be good, or appear to be good software whilst the scanner's running. And that's the trick. 
So how do we work that out when we're writing these hacking tools? How do we know when the scanner's running? Well, I did some research a few years ago now, and some other people have done some research that I'll mention as well in this area. But there's, there's two main ways to do it. There's the way that's useful for a pen test, and there's the way that's useful for ransomware and things like that. The first is effectively target artifacts. If you know something about your target organization, so during a pen test you've done some intelligence gathering or something like that, and you know their domain name, their username scheme, something like that, IP addresses, maybe some of that information could be included within your hacking tool, such that if you don't see that information, you must not be within the target environment, but must be within this emulated environment that the scanner's running. And that works great for pen tests, but it doesn't work so well for the generic malware that has to run on all kinds of different environments, on virtualized systems and everything, the, the way that you would imagine ransomware to work. So an alternative, much harder but much more effective approach would be if you can find something out about the internals of the scanner, if you know something that is present within the scanner, if you spot it, you're being scanned. So behave yourself. And these scanner artifacts can be something very, very simple. So it might be something like uh, the username of the running user within the emulated antivirus engine. So when the antivirus engine scans your malware, you can check what the username is, and if it's a known username of an antivirus engine, behave yourself. Wait until you've passed the tests. The AV says, yeah, okay, this is not bad software and releases you into the real system. That artifact won't be present anymore, and then you can do the attack on the real system. That's a really cool approach. It's not quite as easy as maybe I'm making it out because working out the specific artifacts can be somewhat technically challenging, but there's a lot of research in that area now. So some good uh, things to look up if you're curious about that kind of research is the research that the AV Leak team released. They released it back in 2016 now, but it, it doesn't seem to be common knowledge about how it works. But they looked at some desktop antivirus engines and tried to work out things like the state of the registry, the name of the current running user, those kinds of things. And then they also looked for things like um, system APIs that weren't correctly implemented or were missing entirely, those kinds of things, to see if they could detect reliably that they were in a scanner. It turns out you can. Not only can you detect reliably that you're in a scanner, but you can detect which scanner it is that's scanning you. So yeah, just a bit of a deep dive into the way that anti-malware systems works. We'll, we'll save the machine learning thing for now. We'll come back to that on another day. But I wanted to talk a little bit about AV stuff because I think a lot of companies, anti-malware solutions, antivirus solutions are just a security black box. You install these solutions and never really think about how they work. I think I first became aware of this when I started talking to people about the fact that a lot of antivirus solutions are, in fact, the same scanning engine. A good example there for, is uh, Bitdefender. Bitdefender's engine is uh, white-label resold. It's a thing that a lot of companies aren't, you know, they don't hide it. They, they resell another engine, but they add a value add on top of that. But not a lot of people know about it. So yeah, that's my rant for the day. I just wanted to talk a little bit about the history and hopefully... That's new. I think a lot of people aren't aware of how long malware or certainly ransomware has been around for. Um, but I want to know from you guys, what do you think I missed? Is there any cool malware from the, the old days that you think I should have mentioned? Rabbit from the 1980s or something like that? I guess what I'm trying to ask in a weird way is, what's your favorite 
malware. Now, maybe people who've experienced ransomware in the modern day, kind of post-2015, would think that's a weird question. But back in the old days, malware was very often funny or a prank or it, it did something a little bit strange. Something to check out if you haven't seen it before is the Malware Museum. I'll include a link to that in, in the description for this podcast because it's a it's a cool thing on archive.org where they show you what malware used to look like, where it's just pranks and jokes and those kinds of things. But yeah, what's your favorite malware is my first question. And my second question from a business point of view is, um, what concerns you as an organization? I'd really like to hear from um, SMEs, certainly, in, in terms of things like is it ransomware that keeps you up at night or is it something else? I know we've been talking for a long time. The you know news media has been covering ransomware for a few years now. Do we all think we're protected or is it still something that concerns us? Let us know on social media. Drop us a comment or drop us a tweet. I want to know what keeps you up at night in terms of your computer security. And thanks for listening. <laughs>